Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, we're doing things a little differently. The Middle East program just released a new report titled Sustainable States, Environment, Governance, and the Future of the Middle East. And in this episode, John, Natasha, Will, and I discuss the report, its findings, and what we learned as researchers. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We just released a report called Sustainable States, Environment, Governance, and the Future of the Middle East. We've mentioned the report a few times on the podcast, and I think the first time was way back in December. So congratulations on finally releasing the report. But can you tell me what the report is about and what the main findings are? Sure. The idea of the report is the way that states provide public utilities, whether they be electricity or water or how they dispose of waste, tells you more than just how they provide the public utilities. Doing so in a sustainable way not only helps the environment, not only helps the governments establish greater credibility with people, it builds trust between populations and their governments. And there's a way in which looking at something that seems really mundane and boring, public utilities, ends up being a way to address a lot of the larger challenges that scholars and policymakers looking at the Middle East have been struggling with for decades and helps provide a pathway forward that not only helps the environment in a part of the world where environmental stresses are increasing, but also helps the relationship between governments and populations in a part of the world where those relationships are getting more strained. So what countries did you choose to focus on and why did you choose those countries? We chose Jordan, Tunisia, and Lebanon. They're very similar in some ways or very different in some ways. They have similar populations, similar levels of income, a lot of the same problems in terms of access to water and things like that. But I think they also give you a certain range of experiences. Lebanon has this somewhat unique confessional political system where you have individuals and groups that control sectors of the country, and in some cases, sectors of the economy. Jordan gives you a monarchy with a lot of top-down coordination, and Tunisia gives you an experience of a country that has been through the Arab Spring protests and has tried to create a more responsive democratic system in the Middle East. In many cases, the countries fall into the same group, but the way they operate the software of the countries is really different. And that's a way to highlight what are the real commonalities and what are some of the more subtle differences. We also found that these services in these countries also take a substantial amount of the government's budget. And this is increasingly burdensome for the national debt. And reforms in these sectors would potentially have positive ripple effects throughout the economy for water conservation could save millions, electricity billions. And that's not even mentioning the effects of pollution on health, agriculture, and water. And in particular, these countries, especially Jordan, are quite heavily dependent on energy imports and international aid and loans. And for this reason, they also always seem to be teetering on the edge. So this could also be a vital shift to improve resilience in a very tumultuous region. 
The Middle East has been constantly alluded to as one of the regions that will be most affected by climate change. And one of the big issues with the Middle East is because it's been so tumultuous, especially for the past 20 years, that instead of confronting these crises and going about the policy reforms that would be necessary to improve environmental sustainability, to improve trust with populations, they've been so busy putting out fires that it's been difficult to have this long-term trajectory and policy planning. But for a lot of these countries, the margins are razor thin. In the case of Jordan, you have the second most water-scarce country in the world. Things like sandstorms are picking up at a rapid rate because of unsustainable agricultural policies and partly because of damming. And what we wanted to do is look at specific sectors that were either taking up a lot of water or a lot of the budget, and what were ways of putting these countries on a better path, a more sustainable path, even in light of the tumult around them. And so why did you choose the sectors that we chose, the power, waste, and water? Why did you think that those were the ones that we really needed to focus on? Well, well, no one is untouched by these services. These are things that people use every day. Our lives are completely dependent on these services in the modern world and economies and health systems. They can't function properly without them. And in Lebanon, fairly starkly over the past few years, we've seen how the lack of basic services have launched protest movements. They've affected health outcomes and really, really severely impacted the economy. And I think when we talk about government policies, a lot of these things can feel quite abstract and can maybe feel like they don't impact the daily lives of many of the citizens, or at least not in a direct way. But for a lot of people, when you turn on a tap, you expect water to come out as one of the most basic aspects of government services. It's your first interaction with the state you expect these services to be provided. And then when they're not, oftentimes public anger does turn on the state. And so I think these are a really critical aspect of the relationship between the state and its people. You talked about the relationship between people and the state and the trust that's there. And that's a key theme in this report. How and when did you decide trust was really integral to this project? We came to it right around the new year. As we'd gathered all the information, we spoke to experts, we spoke to people on our advisory board and in our working group, and Natasha raised it as a, a way to articulate the connective tissue between some of the things we were discussing. We did a lot of reading about trust, how people in both the development world, the academic world thought about trust. And the more we explored it, the more we felt it had tremendous explanatory power driving a lot of the phenomena we were seeing on the surface that this issue of trust, which we've thought about in Middle East context for a long time, was a way to connect what we were seeing in a way that the project had even more relevance to issues in the Middle East than we had anticipated when we started the project. Thinking about trust is key to this idea of a transition to more sustainable systems as well. The current way that lots of these systems are set up is not sustainable. And to make it more economically viable, more environmentally friendly, that will require changes at a most basic level, a change in behavior of consumers. We were coming up again and again on this idea that these technologies do exist. Sometimes the governments do have pretty good policies in place to try and encourage people. 
But one of the obstacles is that that requires people to believe that this will be a useful longer term investment and that they will benefit in the longer term from this. And again and again, we kept hearing people don't trust that the government will provide for them. They don't trust that the private sector will be able to get involved in the way that the governments are envisioning it. Trust is not just between the state and the people, but between a whole variety of actors. We certainly found that obviously if governments are able to provide these services better, there's going to be a better linkage of trust between the people and the government. But also more broadly, if you want to actually initiate these reforms, you have to build trust amongst the people. And currently there's a lot of anger. And so you have people who are clanging jerry cans together in protests in Jordan, clamoring for water because they don't have it. And the government's only able to deliver it to people every two weeks. You have people hijacking government infrastructure to get water. But then these same people see banana plantations and they see farmers that are exporting citrus and other water intensive crops out of the country. And when they see that, they're more likely to take what they can get rather than putting something into the public good. Because people want to know that everyone is paying their fair share. Trust is necessary to get people to invest. Trust is necessary to have people defer gratification. And these sustainable environmental initiatives have tremendous payout. The operating costs are often much lower you get people to be willing to invest. They see the benefits. And that then has all kinds of spillover effects in the rest of society. So trust wasn't in the original project idea when we first came up with it. What was the original idea and how did you come up with it? We went to a Pete's Cafe and we chatted about things that were interesting or intriguing us about the Middle East. And one of those things was the idea of weak states or states that don't provide for all of their people, what happens in those situations? How do people adapt? And do people take matters into their own hands? And when I lived in Lebanon, I kept hearing about a town called Zahle. And Zahle has electricity 24 hours a day. And nowhere else in Lebanon has it 24 hours a day. And I was really intrigued about how did they just create their own electricity system that was completely separate to the state. And is that something that happens elsewhere? Do people take matters into their own hands and just create entirely different systems? And then we were thinking about what impact does this have on the authority of the state or the legitimacy of the state? Do states try and quash some of these initiatives that challenge their authorities? But as we were going, the environmental angle grew in importance in our mind. And we started thinking we really should be talking about the environment in a serious way. As Natasha said, this is one of the most affected regions of the world in terms of climate change. And environmental issues are incredibly important to how people live their daily lives in the region. So as that project idea evolved, were there times along the way where you had to make choices on what to focus on or what to leave out? One thing that I think is quite important in the Middle East is the transboundary aspect of this. So there's transboundary water resource issues. There's issues of electricity being connected through grids, through countries. There is that regional and even international aspect of this. And we didn't focus on that, even though it's quite important, especially for Jordan. I think finding bulk supply through water transfers from other countries or salinization is going to have to be part of the future. 
But the thing that we kept coming across is that this isn't happening, right? There is always impediments to more cooperation, whether it's full out conflict or if it's just tensions or bureaucratic hurdles, whatever it happens to be, in a lot of cases, it's not happening. So we decided to look more within borders. What can people do? What can governments do within their own limitations? And that also led us to this focus on environmental sustainability, using renewable energy, for example, you use your own sunshine, you don't have to rely on natural gas or oil from other countries. What can you do within the water sector? We found that 50% or more of water in a lot of these countries is lost through theft or leakage. You have agricultural sectors that contribute about 4% of the GDP, but they use about 60% of the water. And so when you see figures like that, you start to shift your focus to what can be done in the near term without that external cooperation or good faith between countries, which is going to be necessary but might be difficult to achieve in the short term and difficult to rely upon in the long term. There are some solutions that seem like they would be obvious. It's the same thing in Tunisia, where so much water gets lost through poor infrastructure. You might just say, oh, well, you should just renovate the infrastructure and rebuild it. But that's extremely expensive. And what we wanted to try and do in this report was say there are smaller scale things that you can do that don't require billions of dollars of loans that can help this transition towards sustainability. And that can also have added benefits as well in building, as we keep talking about, trust between citizens and the government. The project itself started almost two years ago. What did you think you would find when you first started and was that different from what you ended up finding? I think the initial idea was that by doing things on the periphery, societies would be able to do things that central governments would find difficult to do. I think one of the things that we found consistently is the central government has to play a role. The central government can't be absent. It has to create an environment that things work, whether it's in terms of creating some sort of network that things plug into, whether it's creating a, a legal environment in which these things work, whether it's creating a pricing environment in which these things work. You can't do without a central government, but you also can't be only the central government. One of the really interesting things that came up in case study after case study is honing that role of the central government, where it's not trying to do it all. The central government can't do it all, but it can't do nothing either. It has to create space for others to engage, and it has to have some regulatory role. And what's interesting is that a lot of these services provide ways for governments to get comfortable with their role and also to get comfortable with expertise and resources residing outside of the government. Just as an example that we point to in the report is the Latani River Authority, which is a governmental institution in Lebanon that is primarily in control of managing the Latani River Basin, which takes up about a fifth of the country. So it's quite important. It's also become incredibly polluted over the years. And this has been a rallying cry amongst not just environmental activists, but just regular Lebanese that wish that they could use these waterways. Farmers also that have to resort to using this polluted water to irrigate their own farms. And what you saw is recently somebody coming in to become the director of the Latani River Authority, but also realizing the limitations in his role as a regulator. 
And so what he did is he looked to other institutions within the government, but he also looked towards academic institutions to provide the technical expertise needed to monitor pollution levels, but also to spread awareness about the situation and take certain polluters to court even. So during normal times, we would be doing research trips as part of the project. Natasha, you might go take a trip to visit the Latani River Authority and talk to the director. But the bulk of our research was conducted within the last year. How did COVID-19 shape our research project? We couldn't do any research trips, but luckily conducting interviews over Zoom has been really easy. We also created two separate bodies to help guide the process. The first was an advisory board, which is made up of senior thought leaders, former officials and experts who have been involved in a lot of these issues. And we had a series of meetings throughout the process and they helped shape the parameters of the research. We also created a working group, which is made up of practitioners from the Middle East. So people who are involved day to day with the technical aspects of this, and they as well have been uh, really important in informing us as we go. You know, I think there's a global shift in people's comfort with having meetings electronically. And one of the things we did with the advisory board in particular is we had very focused meetings and we were able to engage the minds and experiences of a very senior group of people that I think would have been very hard to do, either if you had to fly everybody in because suddenly it's a huge commitment to participate, or before a pandemic time when people are more reluctant to video conferencing. And there was a way, we sort of rode that wave of people being so much more willing to engage over distance but you're able to get people's buy-in to participate in a remote process, whether they're in the Middle East or in Europe or in the Western United States or anywhere else, we would span 12 time zones to get people into these meetings. I think that in a different time, if we tried to do this two years ago, the way we engage with the advisory board would have been different and frankly, not as good. And one of the challenges we have as a think tank is how do we sustain that strength as we come back into some new normal. So speaking of engaging, this isn't really a traditionally sexy topic and certainly not a topic that a lot of think tanks focus on. Why is it important that we as a think tank focused on this and who are we trying to engage when we release a report like this? I've spoken to retired military senior diplomats. I think people are starting to understand that the head-on approach hasn't solve problems in the region. In some cases, it's made problems in the region worse. That One of the things I've heard from people I really respected in Washington is sometimes if you can't solve a problem, the way to address it is to enlarge the problem. This provides some really tantalizing opportunities to provide a non-obvious way to profoundly affect things that people have been trying to affect in a positive way, but been unable to affect for a very long time. It's not a panacea, but does it create positive habits, a virtuous circle? I think it absolutely does. We're not going to be fighting a lot of ground wars in the Middle East, and the U.S. approach to the Middle East can't be about special operations forces principally going forward. People are looking for different kinds of engagement. And from a security perspective, 
non-obvious ways to engage on these issues, constructive ways, constructive partnerships, both between the U.S. and foreign donors and within countries, is an important avenue we need to explore. What have you learned from this project as a researcher, and how has it changed your thinking about the types of projects that think tanks can or should be working on? For me, as a Jordanian, there were certain aspects of this research which would have resonated with me even as a child. There's always been a water crisis in Jordan. Everybody knows that. But when you start to think more deeply about your experiences in the region, you realize how many other things are tied to these basic public utilities. For example, I mean, as a kid, I don't remember sandstorms all that much in the Middle East. But as an adult traveling to Jordan and neighboring countries, they started happening all the time. They cause health problems and economic damage. And a helicopter pilot also told me that there used to be a season for sandstorms, but now they happened all the time and they held up air traffic. And this is just one of many indications of how vulnerable this region is to how these public utilities are provided. Almost every aspect of people's lives and the economy and the trust they have amongst each other and with their government is closely connected to these utilities. So if you care about security and if you care about stability and peace in the region, you should be caring about these sectors that take up large portions of national budgets and affect people's daily lives. Something that I have learned from this project is it is so important to really think that a solution that has worked somewhere else might not work in the place you're trying to work. And just because something is a technical solution doesn't mean that it's going to be an effective solution. And just talking to people about their layers of vested interests and the problems of corruption, there are so many problems that might prevent a simple seeming solution from really being effective. We tried to untangle some of that and really identify all of the different problems, but also say you can start small. Some people have managed to make things work in this environment. And we've tried to highlight some of those stories. And we have vignettes throughout the report. There are examples of people who have, against all the odds, managed to build something, achieve something, try a new system. And our aim here is to say, you can build on these examples, you can learn from each other, and you can build up to bigger solutions. We try to highlight the role of think tanks. We're not engineers. We're not experts in the technicalities of this. We're not experts in implementation. But there are things we know from our think tank world about the way power works, political power, the way societies engage with political power, the way people engage. That's our sweet spot. Connecting some of the things we know to some of the things we don't know but are known by others is a way to inform what policymakers think about. Policymakers can get very focused on narrow things, on immediate ways to change things. And what this work did was it highlighted the space that if you're willing to pull back, if you're willing to think more deeply, if you're willing to add what you know to things that other people know, you can end up with a synergy that actually helps address really hard problems that all the policymakers think about a lot. But it highlights an area of effort here actually has an impact over there, that an area of focus leads to other indirect consequences, and that some problems which really have seemed intractable 
you can engage with in constructive ways, but you have to pull out. You have to think about things that might not be related. Why are you talking about public utilities when you're trying to deal with things like political alienation? And I think we walk through some of that in a way that is suggestive to people who have always thought that they have very narrow objectives and persuaded them that they have to see things more broadly. They have to see things more holistically. And I'm hopeful that this kind of work will pave a way not only to giving people more reliable services, not only to addressing some of the challenges of climate change in the region, but toward addressing some of the deeper frustrations that manifest themselves in all sorts of security concerns and other concerns that a lot of people in the U.S. government worry about every single day. Thank you all for joining me. If you are interested in reading the report, you can find it on the CSIS website or linked in the show notes in the episode below. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.